I'm going to need you to take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and I want to give you the fill in the blank immediately. It is this. God keeps all of his promises. God keeps all of his promises. The reason why I want to hit at the heart of it right up front is because we're about to read a story where David actually becomes the king over all Israel. Now he was told that when he was in his early teens. Now he's approaching 40. It is only now happening. He will enter into two different battles with the Philistines and God says that he will win and he wins. And we're going to read that and we're going to say, yay, David, yay, God, yay, Bible stuff, but not in my life. And many of us still hang on to this idea that God has let you down. God has never let you down. God has never violated a promise. Then why do so many of us feel like he has? I entitled this morning's message, which is part 20 of our Life of Worship series, I Told You So. Why? Because every time we doubt God and then he comes through, it seems like you should just have a standard stamp. Stamp it right on your forehead. I told you so. I mean, if I told you it was going to happen, it's going to happen. If God says something, it's a lock every time. So why do we feel so lost in understanding what God said Because clearly either he's wrong or we're reading it wrong. And I would suggest to you that we are reading it wrong. So what we're going to do is kind of deconstruct our ideas on what God has said and what he has not said. So we can rebuild it on a firm foundation. We're going to set our faith underneath the refiner's fire. So he's going to burn off and probably burst a lot of our bubbles about what we thought he said And what type of promises we think we can live under. I went through and did an examination for this morning's message in a concordance looking up all 125 references in the Bible that say the word promise in any sort. Promise, promises, promising, promised. And what I found was intriguing Now, we don't need God to say, I promise, for him to be true to his word. Let me be very clear on that. Although I examined only the times it said promise, I wanted to see where he literally said, I promise this will happen. And I wanted to find out what happened. When people talk about promises of God, is there any indicator that God has broken his promises or never fulfilled his promises? The answer to that is obviously no. But if God says something, and we read it accurately, and it's what he really said, and how he really meant it, then he doesn't have to say, I promise for it to be so. For God's word is true. Remember, God said, let our yes be yes and our no be no, meaning you need to stand behind it. You don't have to always say, I promise, or I commit under an oath, or I swear by heaven. He said, listen, we're not doing that. If you say you're going to do something, do it. So God has many things that we would consider promises. Many people have said in his name, and he allowed them to sign his signature to certain things. 
And we want to know what we can be guaranteed on. I think, unfortunately, we want the guarantee because of a power trip. I think we want to know what we can hold over God's head and say, See, you said you would do this. Because some of us love that type of structure. But let me explain why I'm talking about this. One of the greatest tragedies is that we can hold God accountable for something he didn't say and then call him a cosmic failure when he doesn't follow through. That's my problem. Promises that God actually made, there are few that actually use the word promise in them. Now, uh, another way of saying promise or an oath is to say the word covenant. Everybody familiar with covenant? Yeah, that seems to be a pretty popular word in Scripture. Um, I remember examining this in seminary, and I believe there's probably only seven significant covenants with God in Scripture. We probably only know maybe four of them off the top of our head. We remember the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. That's where God said what? I'm never going to flood the whole world again, and in honor of that covenant, I have given you a rainbow. We know that one. Probably the most popular one that's talked about in scripture is the abrahamic covenant that's where god takes this guy out of the middle of nowhere says i will make you into a great people as numerous as the sand on the seashore i will bring you into a land that i promise you which we call the promised land and i will be among you that was a covenant god made with abraham what's intriguing about that covenant is part of it God said, I'm going to do it regardless of what you're going to do. And then the other part of it was the normal covenant contract. There was a contingency. If you do this, I will do this. You hold up your side, I hold up my side. Either one of us bails out, the contract changes. That is the majority of the Abrahamic covenant. For example, God promised the nation of Israel that he would fight for them. Everybody remember that? I will fight your battles. And we think, man, that's awesome. We're always going to win. And so sure enough, they walked into the promised land and their first battle was what? Anybody remember the first city they fought in the promised land? Jericho. Anybody remember that story? What happened? Well, God clearly fought for them. They marched around the city in rather a silly strategic maneuver. And all of a sudden, the angels moved in. And after they marched, the walls came tumbling down we know that well it sure looked like this is going to work i mean right on the get-go god's there fighting battles shoving over walls that was pretty awesome what's the second fight they went into ai AI. did we win no No. well that's lame i thought we had a promise that god was going to fight for us and god loses the next battle well that's a drag that promise didn't go very far now did it obviously god gave up and god's disloyal and blah blah no what did we learn they didn't uphold their side of the contract somebody messed up we learned later that it was Achan. remember that and god said no 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 in the contract you remember you don't mess with my stuff don't touch my stuff one of your guys stole my stuff so no i'm not going to bless you i'm not going to fight for you that's not going to happen When they cleared it out, God went to fight with them in AI, and they took it over instantaneously. So understand, there were contingencies, caveats, agreements. We have to watch for that in Scripture. 
We can't just say, well, God said that, and then we just run with it. Hold on. What did God say? Um, the one that maybe we're most immersed in now in this series is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is the covenant with David, where God says to him, and we're going to be reading this over and over and over in the coming months, because apparently this series lasts infinitely, all right? He says to David, I'm going to put you onto the throne of Israel, and if you follow me, you will not fail to have a member of your lineage on the throne moving forward. As a matter of fact, I will bring about a man from your line that will be on the throne forever. Everybody remember that? That's the messianic covenant and promise. And indeed, Jesus came through the line of David, just as promised. All right. But do we understand that there's contingencies? If you follow in my ways, I will do this. We get really excited about grabbing Old Testament promises out of context and trying to apply them to modern day lives. That is absolutely inappropriate. If you're going to do that, you better grab all of it which he didn't still agree to. But you have to understand, God's covenant with Israel was not just blessing, but also curses. If you walk away from me, if you follow the gods of the land you are about to enter, I will wipe you out of the promised land. Did God do that? He did. They went into captivity, all of them. Because God's solid to his promises. But we're so quick to grab the positive promises and the yay, positive thinking stuff, and we all grab that and put it on a refrigerator magnet, slap it on our fridge, and now God's locked down, right? He better do that. Well, that's kind of inappropriate. Here's where it begins to get a little bit messy. When you grab a promise to someone else and try to apply it to you, it doesn't work. Don't grab Old Testament Israelite promises just anytime you want out of context and try to apply them to you if it's not for you there are times in the Bible when God will give someone a specific promise he said to Sarah in your old age I will give you a promised child is that for every woman in this room ladies you're happy about that yes okay At 89, you're going to have a kid. And you're like, uh, no, I'm cool. That's fine. Thanks. That's not for everybody. Why do we not grab that one? Because it's inappropriate. He says to Mary, in your womb will be the son of God. Is that for every woman that's been pregnant? That's ridiculous. Yet we don't see what we do normally by grabbing anything that says promise or anything that looks like God said it. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and... We immediately grab, that's absolutely for me. (laughs) Hold up. Can we all please read in context? The more accurate we are in reading scripture, the more locked down and solid and foundational our faith is. I understand this is disappointing to many of you because teachers have gone out of their way to make us more comfortable. And they've done it many times out of incredibly great motives. I know the pressure as a pastor to want to give people comforting good news when they're hurting. Unfortunately, I've been around too much pain recently. 
Too many of us in this congregation have been hurting, and when you hurt, I hurt. And I know that temptation to step in and give the right answer that they want to hear. And so unfortunately, we've created large schools of teaching and large books and amazing radio ministries, all based on making sure that you get to hear something that's encouraging. But what if the answer isn't encouraging? Do you still want it? I believe that as we burn down all the garbage and all the false truth and lower it back down to what God actually said, then we will realize that when God does say something, it will happen absolutely. The great leaders of the Bible, Moses, Joshua, David, guys like this, they operated on the fact that if God said it, that's it. Period. We still see it as opinion because we've been too disappointed. Something's wrong. The other place that it gets a little messy is when we read promises incorrectly that are actually life wisdom sayings. If you've been in this church for any length of time, you know how I feel about the book of Proverbs. I think the book of Proverbs is brilliant. It is a book of wisdom sayings. It is not a book of promises. Please correct that in your theology. Because we grab these. Anybody want to talk about some popular ones? I know ones that you've locked into your own heart and you think they're promises. Uh, if you train up a child in the way he should go with the Lord, then in the end he will not what? Depart from it. We all know that one. Tried to lock that one on God, huh? That's not a promise. That's a probability. That is the wisdom saying. It's saying if all things are equal, if you really want your children to draw back to the Lord later on, give them a solid foundation up front. Train them in the Lord in their foundational times. Because if you do that, the highest probability is that they will go back and lean on that when they get a bit older and move out of their rebellious phase. That's not a promise. I know too many lives that that has not been true. There's one that actually says promise, and we think that, oh, well, that means promise, promise. And it's this. Ephesians 6, 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. We go, ooh, there it is, there it is. Hurry up, grab this one. Quote, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Is it, so do we read that and say... If I honor my mother and father, I will live at least to 90 or beyond. Because that's what the Bible just said. It just said there's a promise. If you honor your father and mother, you're going to live super long. That's not what it said. You go, well, then what did it say, smart guy? All right, well, let me tell you. God says, honor your mother and father, or I'm your problem. And I will shut you down. I'll kill you. All right? So, if you want to honor your mother and father, then, hey, I'm on your side. Let's do this. All right? And I got no problem. Who's the one that's going to shut your life down? Oh, that's me. So, I don't want to see you dishonoring your mother and father. Do we all remember that in the Old Testament, disobeying your parents or cursing your parents was the death penalty? So, why would you live longer? If you honor your mother and father, you don't get killed. 
Pretty practical. But we grab these things out of context and we run around and hurry up and read through little books, God's promises, God's promises, and we try to grab all those and claim those. It's interesting. um, In Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, everybody remember that passage? By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Rahab did this. And they received their reward and there was credit to them as righteousness. It's all these famous things. As you get towards the end of that list, it says, we don't even have time to talk about Samson and Barak and all these. And it goes on. Who received what was promised. Then it goes on to a list of martyrs. It says they were sawn in two and they were, uh, they were beheaded and they were this and they were that. And it says, and they did not receive what was promised. For they wanted a better resurrection, and God had a better plan for them. They did not receive what was promised. Why? Not here. One of the things we need to understand about the promises of God is that here is not it. This is just the beginning. God looks on a continuum of eternity. So if he's going to say, I will bless you, that will either be here and there or just there. But it's still a blessing because we're moving right through this life for the person that believes in Jesus Christ and gives their life to them will never die although he dies. Do we all remember that? But he will live forever. If you're going to live forever, then God has an awful long time to be able to bless you. And it doesn't have to be here. Let's be very clear on when God's going to make good on the promise. Does God seek to bless us? Does God want to give us rest? Does God want to give us the crown of life? Does God want to give us rewards? Yes, he does. Does he have to give them here? No, he does not. As a matter of fact, most of those promises are blessings that are to come. Here is a trial run. Why would you hurry up and give all the blessings here and mess up the whole plan? Hmm. Where it gets out of control... And I'll wrap the intro with this. Where it gets out of control is when we're grabbing promises that God promised to someone else. And we say, God, if it's not true in my life, I don't believe you anymore. We shipwreck our faith. And that we just cannot stand for. Would you grab your Bibles? If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and our team will bring one to you. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Samuel 5, 1. Keep your hands up until you receive a Bible. I'll give you the page number on where to turn to. We got maps and pictures and all kinds of fun stuff for this morning, which we're going to turn to here in a moment. But let me give you a recap because most of you don't remember what we talked about last week, and I know that because I forgot. So here's what happened. Last week, David was anointed... We covered three chapters and I went super long. Now you remember? (laughs) All right. David was anointed as king over the south, the king over the area called Judah. We covered a seven and a half year period. And there was all sorts of intrigue. Saul had died and then in his absence, his commander in chief, Abner, was kind of running the show. He sets up the puppet king, Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Remember that? Then Ishbosheth assassinated, Abner's killed by Joab, and there was all kinds of, everyone was getting murdered. Do you remember that? It was just this craziness. Well, now, all the challengers to the throne are dead. So now what? Who's going to run Israel? Remember, the Philistines are ultimately in control of the whole nation. 
So really, what we're trying to do is figure out who's going to lead the rebellion or the revolution. Is it going to be David? Yeah, it is. It's about time. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, page 257 in the Bible's handed to you, 257, 2 Samuel 5, 1. Let me read the first five verses, and we'll pray for the word and get started. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Man, that took too long. Remember, if you are concerned about how long it takes for God to fulfill a promise or how long it takes for God to answer a prayer and you feel like he moves at glacial speed, that was last week. You want to grab that podcast, I'll tell you that, because that was hopefully encouraging to you. But today we talk about the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't have very much faith in you because we concocted our own religion and you didn't follow it. We made up our own Bible, and you're not adhering to it, and so we're highly disappointed in you. Father, forgive us. That's just not right. Today, Lord, break down and destroy and wipe out that which is wrong about you. Restore within us a confidence and a boldness and a surety of our faith. For God, when you say it will happen... It will happen. And there are things that we can be quite certain of. Wonderful promises that you have given to your children. Allow us to soak those in and move forward with extraordinary faith. In Jesus' name, amen. It says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Let's go ahead and throw up our first map. What we're going to do is we're going to have three maps and we're going to zoom in, but this is the one, and by the way, I'm going to re-ask uh, you to throw this one up towards the end, um, but if you notice, there's a couple pieces you need to see on this. Jerusalem is going to be talked about a lot today, but Hebron's in the south. Hebron is in the Judah area that David ran. All the other piece up top was considered Israel. That's where Saul was in charge of. And despite this map right here, the Philistines actually overran all of it. They were in charge of all of it because of Saul's inability to move them out. But all the way up at the top, you'll see a city by the name of Tyre. That's a pagan city. It's not in Israel at all, but it's up on the coast. We're going to draw your attention to that. But for this purpose, I want to zoom in. We have a little box here to show you where we're going to zoom in right there. We're going to zoom into there. Let's go to our next map. That is what we're going to be talking about today, right here. A couple key cities on there, Hebron's in the south. Bethlehem, obviously, is the birthplace of David. Baal Perazim will refer to Jerusalem, and it will refer at the end from Geba to Gezer, 15 miles apart, that David is going to chase the Philistines back. All right, so we're going to have that map on periodically. But what your Bible says is that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. They brought all their military power behind him. Now, if you remember, I told you that we actually have two books that parallel each other. There's Samuel and Chronicles. 
and certain times they parallel each other. Chronicles actually goes through and counts all the warriors of Israel that came in behind David. And instead of you going back and reading it, let me give you the bottom line. 381,000 fighting troops. They are not just warriors. These are leaders, elite teams, special forces, commanders. It doesn't talk about all the men underneath them. This is a mighty powerful force for the first time united under one king. And it's the first time that Israel's ever going to kind of show up on the world map. Most people don't care what's going on in here in this time of the world. Israel was no big deal. But they're going to start to be. These special forces had people like the men of Issachar, which I have an interesting phrase mentioned about them. First Chronicles 12.32 says, The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That's kind of a weird line. You say that about warriors. What did they know that nobody else knew? It seemed like they were tracking with God. That's extraordinary. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, Behold, you are our bone and flesh. You're a Jew. We're Jews. We're all in the same family. In times past, when Saul was king over us, and he was king over us for 40 years, but now he's gone, it was you, David, who were always our champion. You were the one that led out and brought in Israel, meaning you were truly our shepherd. You would take us out to pasture, and you would bring us back in for protection. For even when... You lived among the Philistines, David. We knew you were doing raiding parties against our enemies. You were still trying to take care of us. We knew that. Look at the next line. And we know that Yahweh said to you, You shall be my shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. We know that. Let's pause. How did they know that? How did they know what God told David? How did they... Apparently, it was widely known that God confirmed and said, David's going to be the king. Saul knew it. Everybody knew it. So let me ask you a question. If you knew that, how come you didn't act on it? If you're so sure that David was going to be the king of Israel, why didn't you take your armies and back him up? Why did you wait for life to force you into that position? Well, I don't know. Let's ask ourselves. Are the things that you know in the Bible that are true but you're going to wait for God to force you by the hand of life. Why can't we move into an obedience place where once we are sure that it is what God said, we align ourselves with that and not wait to be pushed? Why does God always have to corral us into his will? Why can't we just willingly do it? Where is that disobedience from? Where is that rebellion from? If I was David, I would have went, well, if you knew that, guys, thanks for the help. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. That means that he would do, similar to the Hippocratic oath that the doctors take, he would grab the Old Testament and say, I will promise to uphold this. I will seek your best. I will not harm you, I will be a good king, and I will shepherd you rightly before the Lord. And he would promise before God. And they anointed David king over Israel. This is the third time he's been anointed. First time in his early teens, Samuel comes up, they're in the middle of nowhere, 
And God says, you will be the king over Israel. Pour the oil on his head. Second time, in the south, in Hebron, the south says, we want you to be our king. Pour the oil on your head. Now, all of Israel is backing up to confirm what God said initially. Pour oil on your head. You are king over all Israel. Three times, separated by many years. What's intriguing is that Chronicles said that he was anointed king over Israel according to the Lord by Samuel. Samuel? Understand, we're reading the book of First and Second Samuel. Samuel knew what God was saying. Samuel knew the plan of God. And what Samuel said when he spoke on God's behalf was absolutely accurate. Samuel knew this a long time ago. David was 30 years old when he began to reign in the south. And he reigned 40 years, just like Saul, just like his son Solomon will. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Okay, question for you. How many of you have waited literally, I don't mean figuratively, literally years for God to answer a prayer or God to fulfill a promise and it happened after years of waiting? Raise your hand. Okay, a good amount of you. I want you to think about what you're thinking of right now. How many of you waited 10 or more years? All right, still a lot of you. 20 years. How many people waited 20 years for a promise to come about? A couple of you. Anyone 25 or more? All right, we have one over here. What did you wait for for 25 years? For your father to be saved, how long did you wait? So, do the math. Yeah, don't ask me to do the math. That's not going to work. Four, did you say 14? 36 years. So you waited 36 years for your father to walk with the Lord. That's a long time. Did you pray that whole time or did you give up? You didn't give up? I prayed for my dad since I was six and I gave up. And then God answered that prayer without me. You have more faith than I do, just to let you know. Uh, you waited a long time for a prayer. What did you wait for? Do you know? And how long did you wait? He waited for his son to receive Christ his whole life until a short time before his son passed away at 31. Okay, here's the thing. We talked about the speed of God. It's not as we want. But God's listening. And I know we have to wait. And David was told a long time before that something was going to happen. And he must have, at some point, believed that it's not going to happen. And it happened. If God has given you a promise, and you know it to be true, it is biblically accurate, and it is confirmed by witnesses, I want you to hang on. When you pray for something, I want you to be assured that your Heavenly Father hears you, and He might well be working on it but don't give up your faith i know we wait a really long time but god's still going 
The day that David became king over Israel launched a world-changing power. David's lineage will be on the throne for the next 400 years. That's a long time. It's a dynasty. David will select in our next story Jerusalem to be the capital of his empire. Strategic, brilliant move. And Jerusalem to this day is the hub of activity in the Middle East. And it is the crucial place for three of the largest world religions. Let's dive into that story. And the king David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Now this is intriguing. It was not called Jerusalem. It was called Jebus. That's why they're called Jebusites, right? Very simple. But here's what's intriguing about it. If you look at the map, and let's zoom back if we can, all the way back to the first map. If you look at that, the lines on this map are not quite accurate. Jerusalem was a pagan city. Since the days of Joshua, when they first walked into the promised land, they all spread out and they were all supposed to attack territory. And the guys who were supposed to take over Jebus blew it. They were not able to dislodge them. They were not able to kick them out. And so for all these years, since the days of Joshua, all the way to David, there's been a pagan city right in the middle of all Israel. Why? Because it's up on a mountaintop, surrounded by ravines and cliff walls. All their water intake is through tunnels underground, and nobody can get inside. It's not a big place. It's approximately 11 acres. Only 3,500 maximum occupants could be in the city. But nobody can get in it. Nobody can take this place. And so forever after, this city of Jebus has been an embarrassment and a humiliation that they couldn't clear out the promised land. So David selects that as his capital. Why? Why not just go take something easy? Why not just get started a little bit slower? First of all, that's probably not David's speed. However, here's the reason. Despite the lines you see on that map right there, it is actually on the border between the south and the north. Why is that important? Because they didn't used to get along. David used to be the king of the south, but now the north wants to join in. What if he chooses a capital in the south? What does that look like? He's playing favorites. What if he chooses the north? Isn't he also playing favorites? But if you choose something exactly in the middle, then nobody can say that you're playing favorites. Not only that, but if you pick a city of any city that is Israelite-owned, it looks like you're playing favorites. But he grabbed a non-Israelite city in the middle of Israel. It's interesting that God saved it all this time just for this wonderful purpose. But if you remember, even like America had to determine a capital, where are you going to put the capital of the United States when we had a north-south conflict? Same thing. Right there, he selects one in the very dead center of everything, and he conquers the pagan people there, the Canaanites. It says this, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You're not going to get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Thinking David will never get in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Oh, hold on a second. I got some pictures for you. Can we throw up the first picture here? 
Most of you are familiar with a photo like this, yeah? It looks almost like a postcard. Steve Burdick took these photos. We know that because they're in focus. <laughs> all mine are not. All right. Now, we're all familiar with the big walls. See the big walls right in the middle of the picture there that go around the Dome on the Rock, which is one of the most famous buildings in all the world? That is where the Temple Mount was, right there where the Dome on the Rock is. And as a matter of fact, as I told you, Christianity thinks Jerusalem's a big deal because Jesus Christ was crucified died, raised again, and will come back in this region. So Christianity thinks it's a big deal. The Jews think it's a big deal because that range that it's sitting up on is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac. For the exact same reason, the Muslims believe that their father too, Abraham, they believe that he was to sacrifice his firstborn son, Ishmael, which is their lineage. They believe that is a significant place for them as well. Mohammed, their prophet, said that was a big deal. So now three of the world's main religions fight over one piece of territory, and it is right there on the Dome on the Rock. But I need to point something out. This is my little pointer. I like this guy. Woo! See these walls? That's not David's city. Oh, drag. Let's go to the next slide. The city of David is different. I know that we use the city of David to refer to Jerusalem. We use the city of David and Zion interchangeably, but they're actually two different things. Go to the next page. This is the city of David. Look at it and you go, what am I looking at? That is a pile of rocks, all right, in case you were wondering. Now, see these staircases? It is only now being excavated. This is a wall. See, there's little old steps and things like this. All this has to be dug out and figured out which part are walls and which part can you get inside. Let's go to the next one. So no matter where you look at it, it's this kind of thing. It's an archaeological dig. Do you realize that outside of the last 50 years, there was no archaeological evidence that David ever existed? His name was nowhere on any archaeological finds, which is rather shocking when you think that he's the biggest king of all Israel. So most people said, you know what, the Bible's probably bogus. Oops, we found one. And then we start finding this. Why is David's stuff so hidden? Because the city of David hasn't even been excavated yet. They believe now, within the last two years, they've been digging into what is his palace. All of his activity was in the city of David, which was outside the Jerusalem walls. The Jerusalem walls were only put up for the Temple Mount, which was built by who? Solomon, his son, after he died. So let's go to the next slide. Let me explain a little bit of what this is. If you look at the bottom half of this slide, and I can't make my pointer work, uh, the Temple Mount, the big walls, those are actually up at the top of that piece. This extension that comes down is actually the city of David, and it had massive ravines all the way around it. Let me point this out on this side. On this side, the big, huge Jerusalem you see is way up top here. This projection that comes down is the city of David. It doesn't look like this anymore because they filled it in. Let's go to the next one. This is a model that you can go over to Israel to see. As a matter of fact, let's just jump to the next one to show you the size of it. Those are the little people that are looking down into it. So this is like an almost to scale model that you can uh, observe. Notice the big temple mount is here. This is what we refer to as Jerusalem when we're going to visit it today. The city of David is only this portion right in front of it. Most of that is knocked down. Okay, that's the part they're excavating now is all of this. This is the city of David. This is what David took when he took the city of Jebus. All right, let's go back to our story. 
it says, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander, Chronicles adds. So let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are going to keep us out. That's sarcasm. Who are hated by David's soul, meaning I can't stand these people. And Chronicles says, Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, so he became chief. Also, that is why it says, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Water shaft? What are you talking about? Well, how in the world are you going to get water up into this city if the spring is way down here? Well, you have to have an underground tunnel. The Gihon Spring is actually there. That's the only reason why the city of Jebus has existed for so long. So they would go through a series of tunnels. They don't know which tunnel it was that David had to attack or that Joab went through. But it could have been Warren's tunnel. Warren's tunnel is a 49-foot vertical shaft that they would have climbed up through with a whole army and attacked it from the inside. Or they went through a recently discovered, and when I say recently, I mean within the last two years, an amazing tunnel that leads down from the pool of Siloam all the way up into the inner city. I'll show you that in a moment. We had an opportunity to go through a tunnel underneath Jerusalem called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And this is what it looked like. Let's go to the next slide. Now, although it makes that person look larger than they are, it is actually a really, really tiny tunnel. We all had to walk single file. I did most of the walk bent over. I could not stand up into these tunnels. I want you to look at the walls. Do those look pretty solid? How about doing those without explosives? How about chiseling through solid rock? What a drag. As a matter of fact, if you go in Hezekiah's tunnel, you'll see where they missed each other. They were digging from one side, and the other guys were digging from this side, and they had no idea where each other were. So then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, shoot, and they got to dig down and try to meet each other. They didn't know. They had to dig these through solid, solid rock. So these tunnels were a big deal. Let's look at the next slide. It was such an amazing discovery. This is Steve, the gentleman who took the photos, and me. We were sitting right on the edge of the pool of Siloam, which actually comes into a story in the New Testament. But this stairway was just uncovered. So you'd go, well, I was in Israel five years ago. It wasn't there. It was all covered over by dirt. They've only now excavated. It's a 230-foot long tunnel that leads all the way up into the top. Is that what Joab took? We don't know. We don't know what was going on. But do you understand how difficult it was to get into this place? When we walked through Hezekiah's tunnel, it is pitch black. We had people in there and they were singing and it scared the living daylights out of me. It made all the walls feel like they were reverberating and it was all going to crash in on me. I am not claustrophobic, but I will tell you after 20 minutes of walking in the dark, it's weird. And you're hunched over because you can't stand upright. I mean, the whole thing, you always go, this area has a lot of earthquakes. And that's all you can think of while you're in there. All right. <laughs> Clearly, I would not have taken the city first. Okay, here we go. It says, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Millow on inward. The Millow is the area they added in later to, they would pull in stones and fill in some of the ravines so they could expand and build more of the city. So we would say from the modern day of Jerusalem city backwards. And it says, and Joab repaired the rest of the city, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. 
Does it make a difference if God's on your side or you're with God? I think it makes all the difference in the world. Why did David win Jebus? Because God did it. One of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament is when the religious scholars were examining the disciples and they said, wow, these guys are rather stupid. They're ordinary, unschooled men, not impressive, but for some reason they're transforming the world. And it says, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. Do you remember that? If you're with Jesus, it makes all the difference. After Moses spent 40 days with God on Mount Sinai, he came down and no one could even look at his face because he was glowing. If the world does not notice anything different about us, it is likely we are not spending much time with God. That's the bottom line. Because you cannot change. Excuse me, you cannot not change if you're in the presence of God consistently. He just alters you. We pick it up in verse 11. Let's go back to that original map if we could, the big huge one, the one that uh, showed Tyre. There we go. Now this is another sign about how we need to re be reminded that the Bible is not written chronologically. The story we are about to read likely happens 20 years later. Why would they put it here? Because they're trying to say, and David took over a major city, made it his capital, grew in power, and even all the other world powers recognized him as so. So they put the story here. This is out of place. It begins to refer to Tyre, right? This city way up here. He's way down here. What do they have to do with each other? Well, let's look at the, look at the story. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. Why is the king of Tyre building David a house? He's actually building him a palace. Why is he building him a palace? Well, if you look at it, the city of Tyre is actually an island state, and they don't have the ability to grow crops on their own, so who has control of all the inland crops? Israel. You want to be their buddies. What happens if you have control of all the sea trade routes, but they have all the inland trade routes? Who do you need to be friends with? Israel. If you know that they're rising up, and 20 years later, David is actually in charge of the whole thing, they want to be friends. So what they would do is they would tear down cedar trees, both because they're fragrant and they're highly resistant to rot, which makes them the best building materials in the world at that time. He would then strap them to rafts, sail them down the coast to a port called Joppa. Joppa's famous because that's a place where Jonah launched out from, if you remember his story. They would then cart them inward to Jerusalem and they built him a palace. That's extraordinary. Even the rest of the world began to understand what a big deal David was, but only locally. The story goes on. It says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Interesting. David knew that God exalted him for his own glory. God exalted him for the nation of Israel. And only third, God exalted David as a gift to David. David's all right being third. It was God's big purposes, the national purposes. Oh, yeah. And then David. We would do much better if we viewed our lives in that order. That what God is doing to advance you and why you are successful is, first of all, for his glory. Second of all, to bless other people. Oh, yeah. And third, as a gift to you. And David 
took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And between this story and Chronicles, we have 13 more children. If you remember in our last story, David took seven more ladies in his life. Do you remember that? He had three wives and four concubines. Here in this story, we don't even know the names of all of them. We know that the first four kids that are mentioned here are through Bathsheba. We have no idea who the moms are of the rest of them. We don't know anything about these kids. But he had seven children last time. He just added 13. They're likely only counting the sons. David clearly has about 20 children at this time, if we're not going to count all the other girls. He may have had 30, 35 children. Remember how I told you that David was not an awesome dad? One of the reasons is he probably never even saw his kids. Why? Because he married their mom for political gain. Is that all right? No, that's not all right. Is it what all the other nations did? Of course it is. Whenever you become a new king in a region, you make strategic alliances and political allies around you, and you have a whole bunch of wives because they establish connection. You never even see those women. You set them up in a house, and they live their own lives, and you never have any contact with them. Is that what David was supposed to do? Remember, David is awesome at so many things, but there's one area that he's extraordinarily not great at. Deuteronomy 17.17 was laid down far before David was ever a thought in Israel. And it said this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, that's the promised land, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I want to set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, that you shall set as a king over you, meaning he doesn't take it by force. All three apply to David. And he shall not acquire many horses for himself, nor many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. Is David in violation of the Mosaic Covenant? Yes, he is. But you know what's more sad to me than that? Is he teaches his little boy to do it far worse than he ever did. Everybody familiar with Solomon? How many wives? How many concubines? 300 wives, 700 concubines. Do we want to talk about amassing gold and silver? Nobody was more rich than Solomon in this time. And we go, wow, that guy was stupid. Oops, he was the wisest man who ever lived. Intelligence had nothing to do with it. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, understand they're in charge of the whole region. They assume that David was on their side, but little by little, they're seeing him slip away. They finally realize he's the king. Uh-oh, now we've got to go beat him up. All the Philistines went and searched for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came out, come, uh, had come and spread out and made a raid, Chronicle says, in the valley of Rephaim, the valley of the giants. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? The Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Understand, if God says it, David acts on it as if it's fact. So he launches out immediately because God said so. And David came to Baal Perazim, went out against them, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has burst through my enemies before me by my hand like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called bursting like a flood. <laughs> and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away, meaning total defeat in that battle. 
And David gave command and they were burned. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear. Come against them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees. Wait, who's marching in the top of the balsam trees? I don't know. That may be the heavenly armies of God, the angelic warriors that are about to fight this battle. That's pretty cool. Then rouse yourself, go out to battle, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Chronicles adds this line, And the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. With that simple two-bit story, David beats the Philistines once. David beats the Philistines twice. He just did what no other leader had been able to do. Saul had reigned for 40 years and was never able to break the hand of the Philistines off the Israelites. But by the end of this story, the Philistines have been so sufficiently destroyed that they will never again rise up and threaten the nation of Israel. He just did the impossible. He took over Jebus. That was impossible. He became king as a nobody. That's impossible. So why is David doing all these impossible things? Maybe it's not David. Maybe it's God. When will we get to the place where we stop fighting our own battles and allow God to fight for us? Or at least allow God to fight the right ones? Saul tried for 40 years through brilliance and tactical force to get something done in his lives and accomplish nothing. David comes on the scene and by the power of God accomplishes everything. There's a difference in a life of worship. So let me make it practical. God promised David he would be king. He was king. God does promise us things in Scripture. But I need you to understand at least three parameters to understand whether or not the promise is for you. Let's say you examine it and it's actually in context and it's actually what God said. I understand that's pushing it, right? But let's say it is legitimate. There are three things you need to keep in mind because God will only do the promise if. Number one... It carries out his grand plan. What is his grand plan? To show the whole world that he's right and evil is wrong. That sin kills people. And that one day Jesus has to make it right. God will not violate that plan. Number two, he will fulfill that promise if it's in God's immediate will. What is God's immediate will? To love on you with all his heart. Just because you ask for sugar cereal every day does not mean that the good daddy will say yes. I understand it will make you feel better, but not long-term. God is looking for your long-term benefit, and he will not say yes to something that will harm you ultimately. Not if you're one of his. That brings me to number three. The promise is only valid if you're a child of God. If you are a child of God, why? Because he promises his kids. The only thing that he promises outside of his family are things like the return of Jesus Christ. He has told the whole world 
that Jesus Christ will return with judgment for God's enemies and reward for God's children. That is a lock. There's no way that anyone will ever escape the return of Jesus Christ. Of course he's coming back. That is certain. If those parameters are fulfilled and it's in context, then those are things that you can take to the bank. If that's so, I want to read two encouraging scriptures to you as we close out. And it's this. Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God said it. That's it. Secondly, Hebrews 10:19, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. When God says it, it is so. For the things that God says in his word that are true for you, they are immovable. And regardless if they happen in the time that we want, or they happen in this life or the next, God never, ever breaks a promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for encouraging us today in your faith. That, Lord, that we might believe in you with our hope, that we lock on to you knowing that every time you say it is so, it is so. We believe you, Lord. You have not failed us. We have failed you. But thank you for being faithful, being patient, and walking with us again. Please renew your love for us tangibly, that we might know that our good Father is looking out for us. In Jesus' name.